0: Gone are the days where you can fundamentally disagree with someone but still have their respect. These days to fundamentally disagree with someone is to lose their respect. To say something that is objectionable morally to the culture and its norms and values is to put yourself at risk of being canceled publicly over a media known as social media. That didn't exist either. In fact, most of the world didn't care about what you believed. They might have cared about what you spent your money on, but they didn't care about what you thought. Now it's, it's totally different than that. And when we come to a passage like what we just read, that most of the world fundamentally disagrees with us on. We're going to need to figure out if it deserves a warning label. We need to know what the warning label says and who it applies to. This is not the only warning label we find in Scripture. In fact, Jesus was very careful to place warning labels on a lot of what he said himself. They hate me. They will hate you If you say what I say, I don't have anything. Others have a lot. If you're looking for the show here, you're misinformed and over and over and over. So if there is a warning label and if this passage of Scripture can be harmful, we need to make sure at the outset before anything is said about this passage as far as explanation, that if there's a problem with Acts 4.12. It's not a problem with what God said. It's a problem with what men think about it. Because there's only two options when you come up against a group of people that disagree with you. You can either capitulate to what they think, which will win you a spot at the table or the academy or the position. I just read an article about a Fortune 500 company that is requiring signature on a um, diversity and tolerance position paper, and it must be signed at your review, which has everything to do with your promotion. And if a person's not promoted in two years, their position is terminated. This will officially rule out all real Christians from that business this was brought up and the response was that position is more important now that's just one company but that's where we live so we need to get clear and we need to get straight does the Bible have problems that be God's problems or does man just have problems with God's word That's what the Bible says, and that's what we believe. But there are a lot of hills. You've heard this statement. A hill worth dying on, right? Usually, we're not referring to real hills that people really climb with real bullets and the person being shot and falling over and dying on the hill, right? That's a figure of speech that we use uh, regarding uh, contentious intersections, point of contention. You might use it for something that goes on at your work or something that goes on at your home, not a hill worth dying on. That means that you're not going to climb that hill to make your point because it's likely, it's expected that you will receive fire and you may die, right? It's a lot more hills than there used to be where a lot of folks are shocked at a certain place they thought was open And the market of ideas, now it's closed. They're receiving fire, and it might even be friendly. So this is a good word. What to do with a passage like this. Again, the narrative unfolds like this from chapter 3 into chapter 4. It's one continual thread. Some chapters change the subject. This one does not Here's how it unfolds. We covered this last week. There's a miracle. A, a crippled man is healed, creates a stir. People are amazed. The stir precipitates a sermon. Peter begins to preach at the crowd that draws. That sermon agitates some, causes a controversy. Some are saved, they believe it. Others are aggravated. We just read about that. But the controversy results, as we see in this passage, in clarity. And that's the way the church should handle its conflicts. They should result in clarity for the congregation. You sit in a church where the conflicts are spoken of, but there's no clarity as to what to do about them. Find a better church. The Bible is not muddy on conflict. It's very clear on conflict. And it's also clear on how we handle it. I was away last week. At a conference with my wife in the hills, they're very beautiful, near Asheville. And a question comes up, when should we bring up these hot-button issues in our churches and speak about them? And I thought the answer was marvelous. You don't do that unless you want to incite a war. You don't think your way how to talk about something nobody wants to talk about. You just preach God's Word, and when it addresses it, you let it out of the box and let the Word speak about it. Let the word fight its battles, and you love people, and hopefully you can win them to the Lord. But I think this is true. The story unfolds, miracle, the beginning, clarity at the end, and in the middle, we learn today, there's an arrest, there's imprisonment, there's court proceedings, there's testimony, court's decision, and a formal threat by the time we're midway through this passage Well, let's start making points. You can organize what we're looking at this way. We'll manage our time accordingly. Number one, the problem. The problem is the rulers don't like what the apostles are teaching. It's right there in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. I, I really like my ESV, but that word... And the way we use it doesn't, I don't think, fit the attitude. Unless, of course, you fast forward to when this demon-possessed girl is following Paul around everywhere he preaches, screaming to the top of her lungs while he's trying to preach, and he uses the same word. It greatly annoyed him. Eh, it kind of fits a little better. That's almost the way it feels, to try to just week by week, verse by verse teach a group of people who dress up to sit in a room like this, and then on Monday, turn on the television. It's more than greatly annoying. It's lonely. It's frightening. We're lone, it feels like, sometimes. Ashamed of what we believe and confused as how to explain it. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What the world would consider a fantastic fairy tale, we think it's true. Now, this is the first recorded opposition to teaching of the apostles after the birth of the church, and it comes in right at the second sermon is when somebody's upset as to what's being said. I've never been shouted down in a room, preaching or teaching. This man didn't make it to the second sermon without it happening. And it's coming primarily from the priest and the Sadducees. Now, let's take the, Luke's record here as he gives it to us and try to pull apart the pieces of what he's, the picture he's painting. He mentions the captain of the temple guard here, which is a high-ranking Sadducee. That's a technical word. There's Sadducees and Pharisees. There's Essenes and there's Zealots. In Sunday school, we really only heard about the Pharisees, for the most part, Sadducees, if there were any of the other four. And that was the commanding officer of the temple police force, outranked only by the high priest himself. So this is number two as far as the temple complex goes. It was his responsibility to maintain order in the temple courts. This was the same temple guard that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So these men are certainly aware of what's been going on over the past several weeks. Simply put, the priests and the captain were concerned because of where Peter was preaching because it happened in the temple complex. And that's where they keep order and that's where they're in charge. But it's also of interest to the Sadducees because of what Peter was preaching and that was the resurrection. There's a reason why they don't like the resurrection We'll get to that in a moment. We learned in chapter 3 that it was the ninth hour when Peter and John ran across the crippled man on their way to evening prayer. That would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time all this happens in chapter 3, it's late. Several hours had passed. There's no time for a formal hearing before sundown. So the authorities locked the two apostles up for the night. Now, this is different than what they did with Jesus, but that was the Pharisees. These are the Sadducees. They play ball a little differently. But they locked them up overnight. Anybody ever been locked up? (laughs) We got one over here. (laughs) The reason why I ask that is because I'm assuming that most of us haven't. But I would think that most of us would know that somebody has. And there's good reasons you can be locked up for. And there's reasons you wouldn't want anybody else to know about. But it's what happens when the bigger group of people say that you broke a rule that most of the people agree with. Ah, That's about as general of a definition as I can give. There's one member of our family, Extended, uh, that after charges were brought from way back in his life, uh, charges stuck. And he was jailed and has since served his sentence, paid his debt to society. But during that time, my brother, my youngest brother, special needs brother, would write this man. And some of that correspondence he hung on to because he just loved the way that it opened. So how's it going in the slammer? (laughs) And I thought of that when I'm looking at this. Peter and John are in the slammer. <laughs> and it's just a one-night stay. And it's not their only stay. There's going to be more and there are going to be beatings. Where the point is, not many of us know anything at all about what's going to begin to take place. But at this point, they're in jail overnight waiting for these professionals, lawyers to determine how to approach the case in the morning. Before we get to that point, look at verse 4. Many of those who'd heard the word believed. They went home saved, Peter and John, and the crippled man go to jail, and the number has increased to about 5,000. That's 2,000 over the previous number, 3,000 in chapter 2. And this is an accounting similar to the 5,000 fed by the little boy's lunch. It's just the men who are accounted for. So, let's add another point. Number two, the proceedings. They find themselves together again the next morning. The proceedings, the rulers try to stop the apostles from teaching. So, the first is the problem. They don't like what they're teaching. The proceedings involve trying to stop them from teaching. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, this is the Sanhedrin. And it's often called the council. It was our equivalent of the Senate and the Supreme Court all together. That's the amount of authority they had. And in everything but capital cases, they needed Rome to execute Jesus. They couldn't do that. But everything else they could do, and this is how they did it. The council was made up of the high priest who, by virtue of his office, was similar to our president. The council was made up of the high priest... Uh, Seventy others consisting of members of the priestly families. That sounds almost like a mob movie. It might not be far off in some respects. At this time, however, the majority was led by the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, and likely the hearing was convened at their request. Look at verse 6. Luke is going to give us uh, or introduce a few big names. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander. The word ands are added to make it sound like a long list of who's who. If you like a little bio of the people that you read about in the Scriptures, we know some things about these folks. Annas was the high priest for nine years until Rome thought they had a better candidate, though most of the people recognized Annas as the real high priest, even though his son-in-law... Uh, Caiaphas was replaced and was high priest for 18 years during Pilate's term. We think that John was actually Jonathan who was Annas' son who would later replace Caiaphas. We have no idea who Alexander is. Now, the Sadducees, if you want to kind of describe them and the way they acted aristocratic, wealthy, influential, powerful. All the who's who in Jerusalem belonged to the Sadducees. Collaborated with Rome for power. Again, the time held they were the majority and had control. As far as their votes, they did what they want. Now, theologically, and this is the most important to what we're reading and why they would haul them in, they denied the supernatural altogether. And there's times where it's almost convenient to bring up the resurrection because it's a good way to get the whole thing fighting. Because the Sadducees didn't believe what the Pharisees did on this. And they, their national sport is arguing. It's the way it always was. It's the way it still is. But in this case, as long as... There' nothing said of spirits, angels, miracles, especially the resurrection. They're cool with the first five books of the Bible, especially the law, and with God himself, just so long as they're not going to have to believe anything irrational, very rational thinking people, educated men. And then the way the setting is described, you've got Peter and John, the doer and the thinker, you know, the one who would do before he thought and the one who would think before he would do. And then this man who was healed, they're there as well. Verse 7 And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So I have to pause right there. That's the opening line. Proceedings are underway. These are educated men. They've spent all night trying to figure out what to say. Surely the words would have been chosen specifically so as to get what they want for a conviction, but without giving away anything that might hold that up, right? We've seen Matlock before. We know how this works. By what power or by what name did you do this? And this is where I think Peter could very well have asked... um, Be specific. What do you mean by this? This what? And this is where I think he might have just went, this? Man standing here? Who you all know until yesterday sat everywhere. Is it this that you're talking about? Now, Luke doesn't give us the details. I would think that would be great. But remember, they're rationalists. They can't say that because that would be a tacit admission of the fact they're standing looking at evidence they can't account for. So they're going to have to call it something, but they can't call it a good, kind deed done to a crippled man as Peter does. So this is the picture waiting for an artist to paint. I would love to see what this might have looked like with all the pomp and the dignity and the robes sitting in a circle with who knows how much wealth accounted for, and then these two uneducated Galilean fishermen and a man who was a cripple but is not while they asked these opening questions. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's his bailout from heaven, which was promised to them, in Luke 21, the end of the previous volume, this is Jesus speaking. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, in, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Because it's not a sideshow or smoke and mirrors that they're trying to convince the world of, but the truth, the dead man alive. It's not theater. It's truth. So what does he say after addressing them as rulers of the people and elders? If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth... Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That sounds like something I'd have had to practice all night. We just read where Jesus said, don't waste your night, go to sleep. I'll give you that when you're on your feet. Not because you have to make it up to sound eloquent, because you lived it. You're just talking about what you saw. So right out of the gate, with irony, Peter's making known that this case for which he and John were imprisoned is actually over an act of kindness, even though he knows that it's not, and they know that it's not, but he wants to get that out and make sure everybody hears it. By what power and by what name did you do this, was their question. So Peter answered both, but in reverse order. First, by what name? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. I know it and you know it. And that probably had an especially uh, bitter point to that blade for Caiaphas, who should have been sitting right in the middle looking at him straight ahead. When Jesus was talking to Pilate, when Pilate had asked him, why are you here? Jesus had said to Pilate, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That'd be Caiaphas, who they killed but God raised. And then as far as the power, whom God raised from the dead, that's pretty powerful. By him this man is standing before you well. Well, So not only is this done in the name you told us not to speak of, but the name is the power because God raised that name from the dead, the one you said did not rise because you don't believe in the resurrection because it's not rational. He's got them tied up. One time I opened the lid to the gas uh, tank buried in my yard to see how much gas I had left and whether or not to call the man fill it up and I found that it was home to a number of lovely big black widows so what did I do go get some gas and a lighter or hairspray or... no I got a jar and I put it in a jar the crazy thing about that day and that jar was that I also came across a rather fine specimen of a praying mantis the same day so what did I do Kill the praying mantis? No. I got another jar. And then I put them both in the same jar. (laughs) Who do you think won? (laughs) The black widow sat there for a long time. And then the black widow attached a tiny little thread to one of its legs and then went back in its corner. And then it went to another corner. And then another corner. And then another corner. And one by one, that praying mantis' limbs got tighter and tighter to its body before that black widow ate him. Now, why do I bring that up? That looks like what Peter's doing here. Now, is Peter the superior being? No. He's just been given the tools of truth by the God of the universe that cannot be contradicted or withstood by the lies of the devil. Amen. It doesn't work that way. Now, does that mean that Peter will enjoy this wonderfully pain free lifestyle that should come with having the superior idea? No. He'll die for it, along with many of the other disciples, except for one, which would be John. But look at verse 11. This is how Peter transitions from talking about this good deed and whose name it was done in and the power by which it was done. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, which is his artistic way of saying, you know, you, Israel, all of us thought ourselves as the cornerstone, but the world has tossed it away, even though God promised To glorify us as the cornerstone of his work in his planet. Jesus is the cornerstone. You threw him away, but God will glorify him. It did that by raising him from the dead. And then as though to rule out any uncertain terms whatsoever. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what started as a miracle, that's really not the issue. The issue is whether or not Jesus is the only means to salvation. So the controversy, because of the message, because of the miracle, has begotten clarity. You won't find a clearer explanation of the implications of the gospel anywhere else in Scripture. There are other places where things like that are said, but this is as clear as it is preached. Now, as far as next week, we've, we've gotten from the problem to the proceedings. They really run headlong into a brick wall known as the predicament, which is next week. Let me read ahead because this is a terrible place to pause the episode when you say, so I'll give you a little sneak peek and then we'll get back to something we need to work out before we close. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished because uneducated common men don't talk like this. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Boy, wouldn't it be nice if the world knew that of us. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that this may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. It's not going to work. But back to this verse 12. You ever been in a situation or a class, lecture, Dinner with family or in-laws. And everything's going great, fine, dandy, until out of nowhere, everything gets weird. Something is said. Something's remembered, brought up. The the, the, the air in the room gets thick. You know, this so say you cut it with a knife. That's what has happened here. It seems as though between verse 12 and 13... Uh, recess we got a problem here and this can't go on the other places in scripture jesus in john fourteen six. i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me it's the only way peter had just said no other name and no one else 1 Timothy 2 For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Back to that business of the warning label, the culture we live in, where it used to be you could disagree and be friends. You disagree, you're not friends now. Especially the more elite, the more educated, the more important, the more. The affluent, the more power, the more control, the more this is in play. They call it too narrow-minded. They call it intolerant. That people should think that of all the religions in the world, theirs is right and all the others are wrong. That's what this boils down to. That's why it's so offensive. Because if there's anything offensive in modern culture is that you would have the right to tell someone else what to do, what to say, what to think, what's true, what's false. They call that the height of arrogance. And if you don't feel that as a Christian, where you work, where you go to school, what you watch on TV, you're missing something. And it's at a point I don't think I've ever known in my lifetime. Will it get worse? Probably. Is the Lord any less in control? Absolutely not. Is this when we all decide we're uh, not going to be happy living our lives? No. In fact, there's a harvest, white and ready. We may have actually more opportunity to win the loss than before where everybody thought they were, but they weren't, where people just assumed they were saved when they weren't. Now, you want to be saved, you need to know what it means, and you better be able to Swim, lest you sink. Now, this is the kind of thing where you can't have your cake and eat it too, regardless of what the world believes. And this is something that may help us, even though the world's not going to buy it. But you may find someone who would respect the fact that, as a Christian, you have to believe what Jesus said because the Bible says it, and that's the Bible. So, I'm a Christian. I have to believe all of it. You might find sympathy from some who would say, well, at least you're honest with what you believe. But they would prefer that you believe everything but this part, where it's good for you, but it's not good for everybody else. But in this case, it would really absolutely render the gospel worthless. If Jesus was wrong on that, how could he be right on anything else? Now, Would you feel better about your spouse lying to you? You know, just so they could have their opinion? Or would you say, you know, if they're going to lie to me, it's really hard for me to trust whether or not they're going to tell me the truth later. So either the whole thing's true and it all fits together, or we take this piece out and it all crumbles. Now, that's being faithful to the text here. But there's some who would act like that's almost viable, and they come in the back door by saying, "As long as you're, as long as you're faithful, and, 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 and as long as you're sincere with what you believe, all those roads lead up the same mountain to heaven, and Christianity is as good as any of the rest of them." But that's not what the Scripture says, and this is where you would have to push a step further in a conversation and say, listen, Jesus is not the only way to heaven because we say so. Jesus is the only way to heaven because he said so. And there's a reason why we believe what he said is so. But that's going to take you a long time to explain to them because that starts in Genesis 1-1. And it's an entire Bible fit tightly together with a huge argument that lays the foundation for how what Jesus did does answer the question most important to every man, woman, or child. And you might have to just kind of put it in a suppositional format. And we've been through this before. We just go over the highlights. But suppose there was Always something, never nothing. That answers the question why there's something rather than nothing, and that something that's always been had the power to create everything else that is. In other words, we all came from design, and we call him God, and the Bible tells us that that happened over the space of six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Let's suppose that's true. And let's suppose that this God made man and woman in his image, So they looked like him a little more than the rest of the other stuff that he created, though they were great. The man and woman could listen to him, talk to him, and know right from wrong and keep a commandment, but they chose not to. And disobeying this God who was righteous and just, who made them to be righteous and just, now you've got a mixed-match system where you've got the thing he created to show off his glory. Dishonoring him and rebellious to him, and he promised if you did that, then I'll cut you off, and the life I gave you, I'll take back, and because of sin, you will die. Let's just suppose that's the system. Now, as soon as man and woman disobeyed that, would there be any person who would say it would violate his rights as the creator and the author to just... Destroy them. You ever made a piece of art? Do you think you have the authority to destroy it if you don't like it? On that trip, me and my wife took, I took a picture of her. And usually, as a good husband, I turn around and say, What do you think? Oh, no. Get rid of that. Well, I like it. She owns the rights to her likeness. Right? It's her likeness. So think of it that way. Yes. But is that what this God did according to the Bible? No. He told them they'd die, and it wasn't anywhere near the same after they sinned. But then this dramatic story of what he does with a specific group of people, with specific laws, with specific ways in which this God interacts with them, including kings and priests and judges and His Word given to them on the top of a fiery mountain. It's an incredible story. But over thousands of years, these people demonstrate one thing demonstratively. They can't obey Him. They can't be like Him. They don't look like Him. They would just as soon worship something they carved out of wood than worship the one who made them in the first place. So at a specific time in this story, along with promises that foretold the way it would happen before it happened, this God actually goes to earth himself and takes on the very created being so that he could pay for the sins Of this being in the body of one of these beings, such that his father would be satisfied and forgive the whole thing for one deal, and that is that they honor the one who dies in their place. Crazy story. Let's just suppose it's real. If that story were real, would anybody say, Well, I think it's great, but I don't think that's enough? I mean, why can't he just let us make this up on our own? Save ourselves the way we so choose. I mean, how could the guy who made us in the first place be so arrogant to think that he could not only tell us what to do, but then save ourselves after we've ruined what he gave us? Nobody would say that. And that's the reason why we believe what Jesus said is so. And that's why we believe there's no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Whether the world agrees with that or not. Whether it costs us or not. So if these men are asking Peter and John, by what name do you do this? And when the world comes along to say, by what name do you do this? There's only one answer. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and raised, there's no other name. And by that name, we must all be saved. And Christian, you must be prepared to die for that. Or it's not your life. Now, do I think that we'll see in my lifetime what men and women greater than we saw in theirs, where that was actually asked and taken of them? I have no idea. But this is the truth. It says the Word of God. If passages need warning labels, the warning label is for us. Believe this at your Temporal safety, but eternity is your reward. Ignore this at your temporal safety. You may forfeit your eternal reward. This is one of those passages you just kind of have to look at it this way. There's only one name. And there's life in that name. And with that said, where else do we go but to prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for this passage. We are perhaps frightened at its implications. Either this is true and it means everything, or it's not, and it doesn't mean anything. But if it means everything, it's worth everything. Lord, give us what it takes to tell other people. Give us what it takes to believe it ourselves at cost. Lord, give us what it takes to survive when we're the only person who believes what the world thinks is stupid. And Lord, give us these words like you gave Peter. Not for a slam dunk, but just for a glimpse of truth that might take root in someone else's heart and redeem them as you've redeemed us. Lord, give us strength, courage, guts, but give us compassion. And let us see people through your eyes and not our own. Lord, thank you for Wake Chapel. Thank you for a church that would gather to hear things like this, be encouraged by them, and put them to use. Thank you for our time together in your house. Lord, may we understand, may we obey. We ask this in your name. Amen.